0: Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, we will in a moment be reading the whole of that chapter. Genesis chapter 19, beginning in a moment in verse 1. Genesis 19 includes the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And to be sure, the vast majority of preaching and teaching on this text seems to focus on that. The destruction of the wicked, well, that preaches. It's an easy sell. And when the sermon is calling down hellfire and brimstone upon the homosexual perverts of Sodom, everyone sitting in the pews can nod approvingly and let out the occasional amen. For it doesn't strike too terribly close to home. Sermons about them are always easier than sermons about us. Yet, if we were to preach the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a text, if we were to preach Genesis 19 as a text principally about the judgment of God upon the wicked, we would risk going home unaffected, unchanged, unsanctified, unreached, and quite frankly, out of touch with the true message of Genesis 19. Now, to be sure... Homosexuality is a grotesque and abominable sin. It is evil, and it will be punished by God. But that's not the point of Genesis 19. If we preach God's wrath and anger against homosexuality, we miss the point. For the men of Sodom and their sexual perversion are not the main focus of the passage. In fact, they appear for only four verses out of 38. Just over 10% of the text is about the wickedness of Sodom. The vile wickedness of homosexuality is the backdrop against which the real story is being set. It is Lot. Who is the main point of this story it is lot who is present in verse 1 and in verse 38 it is lot who is at the center of all of the dialogue it is lot who is part of the commotion on the front lawn of his house It's Lot who is at the city gate when the angels arrive. It's Lot who is disputing with the angels inside of his house. It is Lot who is part of the group that flees to the hills. And it is Lot who is in the cave at the end of the text with his unrighteous daughters. It is Lot who holds this text together. Not the men of Sodom. Not the homosexual acts they wish to perpetrate. The story is about Lot. And the New Testament, Second Peter, tells us very clear that Lot is one of us. Peter twice refers to Lot as a righteous man. A righteous man. He is a believer. He has adopted the God of his uncle Abraham. This text is not about the wickedness of the world out there. It is about how we believers live in the midst of that wickedness. It's about how we exist in a dark and fallen and broken world. To Preach a hellfire and brimstone sermon against homosexuality would be easy, but it would not accurately reflect the text before us. You see, the point of this is not their condemnation, but our bare salvation. The point of the text is not about the wrath of God on them. But the the way in which we may only barely escape the wrath of God on us. I believe it was Charles Hodge who said that if Abraham is the father of all who live by faith and are saved by faith, Lot is the father of all those who are just barely saved. He is a believer, and yet his is not a story. Of a joyous salvation. It's not a story of rejoicing in salvation. It's not a story. About the excitement of salvation. On the contrary. Lot's story. Is the story. Of the sergeant. Who makes every wrong. Battlefield decision. And it cost his men their lives. The platoon is wiped out. But hey, sorry, you survived. So you can feel good about that. If we read the story of Lot as a story of, look, he's saved, so that's great news. We are reading it not in the way that it was intended. For if we accept the literature of Scripture, the, the mode of the transmission of the message as being every bit as important as the message itself, then we must accept That this story is a dark, depressing story. We must hear its warning. If the Proverbs this summer were nuggets of wisdom by which we might live rightly, this is an illustration of what happens when we do not live by wisdom, but live in this world wrongly. Lot is a man barely saved. Lot is a man who is saved, but with great loss. It is a sober and somber warning. As has been my practice throughout much of the book of Genesis, as we read, I will make comments along the way in an effort to take this 3,500-year-old document and bring it into our understanding today. Before we do so, let's pray. Spirit of God, reveal to us the message of Genesis 19. And let the heaviness of the message rest upon our hearts. Not so that we would be discouraged or depressed, but so that we would be warned and moved and motivated toward wisdom so that we would not repeat the errors of this man lot. Give us grace to hear what you have to say through this story and give us strength to live lives that bring light into the darkness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Recall that when we last were looking at the book of Genesis some months back, our protagonist, Abraham, was hosting three men. You'll recall that three men showed up at his tent and that he had greeted them and was talking with them. In the course of the conversation, it was revealed to us initially and eventually to Abraham that one of those three men was a theophany, an appearance of God, on the earth, that Yahweh, his God, was talking with him. The other two men are revealed eventually as angels. And in the course of that discussion and debate, uh, God revealed to Abraham his intention to destroy the city of Sodom because of its great wickedness. Abraham, as you may recall, enters into a debate, a discussion with God. Remember how that goes? He says, God, wouldn't you, you wouldn't wipe out all the righteous with the wicked, would you? Wouldn't you spare the city of Sodom if there were 50 righteous men? Oh, what about 45? No, make it 40. Okay, I'm, th- I'm kind of 30. And 20. How about 10? God, will you spare the city of Sodom for 10 righteous people? And God says he would. And we're going to see that come back in this text. And it seems that perhaps what Abraham was really doing was holding out hope. That maybe his nephew Lot, you'll recall back in chapter 13 that he and Lot had parted ways. And that Lot had taken his tent and pitched his tent near the city of Sodom. And it seems that Abraham was hoping, well, nephew Lot is one righteous man. Perhaps he's found some righteous men for all those daughters he had. Maybe that gets us to six righteous men. Maybe he's had an impact on his co-workers in the office. Maybe he's converted his neighbors. Maybe, just maybe, by the presence of Lot in the city of Sodom, there are ten righteous, and God will spare Sodom and my nephew Lot. With that backdrop, we pick up now in chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. In the evening, darkness is falling. Just as any good movie scene is set against a backdrop that supports and reinforces the motif, so too here as well. The darkness that is falling physically is a metaphor for the darkness that has fallen and is falling spiritually and the darkness of the judgment that is coming upon Sodom. There will be three more such time markers that Moses will reference in this text. So apparently the passage of time, the chronology seems to be important to Moses and perhaps we should let it inform our understanding of the story as well, Note also that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. This may not mean much to us, but to Moses' original audience it would have meant a great deal. For it was in the gate of an ancient city where the business of the city was conducted. The civil affairs of that city took place in the gate. Decisions about the city were made trials and the decision about the guilty were rendered in the gate. And that Lot is said to be sitting in the gate, tells us that when, back in chapter 13, when he pitched his tent near Sodom, today he is part of Sodom. And we will soon find that he has a house in Sodom. Unlike Uncle Abraham, who's still living in a tent, he has set up a permanent residency in the Sodom's south estates. He was a wealthy man, probably has a great view out over the Salt Sea. A lovely beachfront home. He had become part of the culture and risen to a point of prominence in the culture. And why not? When he looked at Sodom back in chapter 13, he saw that it was a lush valley that there was richness down there. His flocks would prosper down there. And why not go and be wealthy? After all, my children will get a better education down in Sodom than they would out here in the wilderness living in tents. And the travel soccer leagues, or I guess here in the Eastern Shore I should say, the lacrosse leagues are going to be better for my daughters down there in Sodom. There's nothing wrong with being a part of the good things of this world in and of themselves. And yet, what inevitably happens? We begin to compromise. Sure, honey, you can miss church just this one Sunday for your lacrosse tournament. Lot has set up his home in a place that he knew to be wicked. Peter tells us that Lot was, the King James wording is, I like it, he was vexed by the wickedness of Sodom. And yet he continues to live there. More than that, not only has he chosen to live there, but he has made himself so much a part of the community that they have elected him to the town council. He's in the gate. He's part of the decision makers. He's a power broker in the city of Sodom. Now, you or I would not be particularly surprised to find out that an evangelical believer, a a brother or sister in the Lord, was on the city council of small-town Indiana. That wouldn't really shock us. But if we begin to learn about a brother or sister who manages to get elected to office in San Francisco or Las Vegas, back of our head is going, wow, wait a second here. He or she must have sold out. They must have compromised themselves. There's no way an evangelical Christian could be on the city council of those places whilst also standing up for God's morality. We are to have that view of Lot. That's the story being told. We pick up. When Lot saw those angels cloaked as men, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Hospitality was a big deal in the ancient Near East, and it continues to be a big deal in much of the modern Near East. You were to be hospitable to strangers. The Original audience of this story would have known that and would have recognized the importance of hospitality, but they would have also recognized several of the clues that begin to point to us that the hospitality of Lot does not measure up to the hospitality of Uncle Abraham. Uncle Abraham ran. The minute he saw the three visitors on the horizon, ran to greet them with eagerness. Lot sits in the gate and awaits their arrival. Uncle Abraham spends an entire day preparing food for his visitors. We're given an interesting contrast here. It says he prepared them a feast and that he baked unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was the bread of the hurried person. No time to knead yeast in and wait for it to rise. Unleavened bread was the bread of the person in a hurry. And the hurriedness of Lot with regard to his hospitality is found there in the verse where he says to them, you can rise early tomorrow morning and be on your way. Don't let the door hit you in the backside as you leave. The general sense of this is not particularly hospitable. And we see that in the response of The angels. Not only was it customary to offer hospitality, it was customary to accept it, and they don't. We'll stay in the city square. Thank you very much. He realizes by their response the error of his ways, and he begins to amend it, and he pleads, and eventually they agree to come to his home. I've lost my place. There we go. Okay, sorry. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. The word of these visitors has spread quickly in the time it took Lot to make dinner. This may be why he was in such a hurry. We, we know from Peter's account that he was aware of the evil of Sodom, and maybe he was worried that this would unfold the way it's about to unfold. That could be why... He was in such a hurry. But despite his vexation, despite his distress, my version uses the word distress in Second Peter, over the behavior of the city of Sodom, it is not such that he's willing to get up and leave Sodom. It has not been, at least to this point. How like me, I won't speak for you. How like me. To watch a movie and be disgusted by the sin it portrays, but not disgusted enough to turn it off. How like me to be frustrated with the lack of quality programming on television, but not so much that I actually cancel my subscription. Lot was vexed by the wickedness around him, but not to a point where he was going to get up and leave. That city To the last man may be a bit of an over-translation. Uh, for instance, in a moment here, Lot is going to go searching the city for his son's-in-law. Well, if every single man in the city were in his front yard, then he wouldn't have to go searching for his son's-in-law. That seems to be a bit of an over-translation. Uh, the point here, and, and, and the Hebrew wording certainly doesn't require that it be read that way. The point here, though, is the pervasiveness of this evil. It is thoroughly through all of the city. In verse 5, and they, the people on his front lawn, the men on his front lawn, called to Lot, "Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them." If you are new to our study of the book of Genesis, this euphemism may not be familiar to you. To know someone is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Chapter 4, verse 1, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. These men want to have sexual intercourse with the visitors in Lot's home. Um, these visitors, though technically angels, present as male human beings. Thus, the men of Sodom were eager to have homosexual sex with these, and there seems to be, as we'll see, an inclination toward violent homosexual sex. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Notice his desire to still be a part of this city. Not my enemies, not those threatening me, my brothers. Behold, I have two daughters, who have not known any man let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof no one is quite sure what to make of Lot's offer this offer to swap his virgin daughters for the angels was he so perverted by the culture around him that that this seemed good Was he just flummoxed and flustered and not thinking clearly and straight and just the first thing that blurted out of his mouth? Well, I guess heterosexuality is better than homosexuality, so here, here are my daughters. Why does he react this way? Is he so motivated by hospitality? I don't, I was, I, I, I mishandled my offer of hospitality before. I surely don't want to make that mistake again. I better make sure I take care of my guests. We don't know Why Lot arrives at this uh, despicable proposition that he would give his daughters. We do know this that any reasonable list of parenting responsibilities has near the very top of it protect your children. Protect your children, particularly from evil. A scraped knee is one thing, that's not inherently evil. Rape at the hands of an angry mob is something altogether else. What is before him is evil. And I remind you, Peter described Lot as a righteous man. This ought to begin to be a tad unnerving. If you're sitting here today, thinking to yourself, that you are going to gain favor with God, that you are going to be right in the universe because you do good things, because you are kind to people. This is kind of a backdoor undoing of that thinking. Think about it. If you're saying to yourself, that i have to clear some basic bar of goodness to be right with God, to, to, to be okay in the universe. You might at first say to yourself, well, the story of Lot just means the bar is set really low. If he's righteous, then I don't have to be very righteous to clear the bar. And you might at first be tempted to find in this story some comfort It's easy to enter heaven. It's easy to be saved because you don't have to be any more righteous than this bum. But here's the thing. A bar that must be cleared is still a bar. As this story goes on, we're going to find no redeeming qualities in Lot. There are none. There is not one point at anywhere in this text that he is portrayed positively. His hospitality has been wanting. His protection of his visitors is accomplished by trading off his virgin daughters. And on we go in the story, he is never portrayed positively. doesn't matter how low the bar is, Lot does not clear it, for he is not portrayed as having even one good deed. If you think salvation is by doing some amount of goodness, of being kind to a certain degree. This ought to cause you to rethink that. Let's continue. But the men of the city, of verse 9, said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Brothers and sisters, let this be the first of many dire warnings in this passage. The world will never truly accept you as one of them unless you are one of them. The only way to be accepted by the world is to be one of the world. Oh, for a time it may seem as though you are getting along with the world, but God said, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. If there is no enmity between you and the world, then one of two things is true. That enmity will eventually be revealed as it was in Lot's life. Or there's no enmity because you are part of them. The story of Lot is a story of a man trying to fit into the world. And for all the efforts he made to fit in, in the end they still turned on him. They still rejected him. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out, that is the angels in his house, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. A scene that began in darkness now enters a new depth of darkness. What little bit of light there was, light of the moon, light of the stars, light of perhaps a lamp in a window, is now utterly lost to them. Again, the metaphor is clear. At the very mention of the hint of a slightest whiff of condemnation or judgment, the people of this world freak out and they turn on Lot. Verse 12, then the men, again, the angels in his house, said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before Yahweh, and Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, get up. Uh, sorry, sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. The text is a little confusing at this point. He has made reference to daughters who have known no man, that is, they are virgins. In the biblical uh, 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 view of marriage, uh, uh, sexual intercourse is the consummation of marriage so that there is no sense in which there is a married virgin. That doesn't have any place in the Bible's view of these things. So how is it that they're referred to as sons-in-law? Well, some translations, such as the one I just read, will refer to the marriage in the future tense. They will be, they are to marry his daughters. But that's actually not what the Hebrew has. And the King James correctly Uh, 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 translates it in the present tense they are married to his daughters so some have said well we got to understand it means they were going to be married and in that culture the engagement was a contractual obligation as as uh, 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 sacred as as marriage itself and therefore you could refer to them as sons-in-law even though technically they weren't yet I don't think we need to be that complicated about it I think we just need to recognize that he's got multiple daughters he's got the two at home who are not yet married. This is referring to sons-in-law of older daughters who are now out living in the city. I think that's the better way to handle this. keep going here, verse 15. Um, Oh, by the way, we should note too, just like the the broader community has turned on Lot, his own family turns on him. We notice how the sons-in-law just assume he's jesting He's got to be joking. They don't take him seriously. Just as he thought he had the respect of the community around him, he doesn't even have the respect of his own family at this point. Verse 15. As morning dawned, this is our second time marker, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. I think that supports our view that there are other daughters who are not here. Lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Just consider that phrase for a moment. He's been told that God is going to destroy the city, but he lingered. It is a revealing statement. How many of us linger at the attractions of this world? The promise of wealth, of ease, of power, of influence. These draw us to a wicked world and we linger before it. We reside so near the city of man, the city of destruction, that when fire falls from heaven, as it did on Sodom, we are at risk of having our eyebrows sink. Because we linger near this wicked world. When God's messengers, when the prophets, when the apostles say flee. We need to flee. We need to run. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Yahweh being merciful to him. And they brought him out and sent him outside the city. Earlier, the men had to yank Lot out of the city into the house to save him. Now they have to yank him out of his house into the uh, surrounding wilderness to save him. This is not one going willingly to salvation. But one who is compelled by God's mercy to be saved. Verse 17, and, they, and as they brought them out, one said, one of the angels said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. After lingering, Lot now says to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Okay, I'm getting out of the big city and the wickedness of, you know, the big city. But can't I go to small-town America? I mean, come on, small-town America, there's not a lot of wickedness there, is there? Come on, dear angels, let me go to this little city. He said to to him, uh, the angel said to Lot, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little city. Keep this exchange in the back of your head. How he was told to flee to the hills, and he says, No, if I go to the hills, disaster will overtake me. I'd rather go to Zoar. File that away. Continuing with the text, verse 23. The sun had risen, our third marker of time. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. The sun is fully up now. What wickedness was done in the nighttime, will now, the judgment of God, will be seen for all in broad daylight. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The ancient word for sulfur is the word brimstone. It is passages like this from which we get reference to hellfire and brimstone preaching. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Remember I mentioned that there would be nothing good said about Lot. So he has uh, uh, lingered when he was told to flee. Well, so we back up. He, he, he gave a less than sincere invitation and the angel initially rejected it. Once they do come to his house, he protects them by offering up his daughters to be raped. Uh, that doesn't happen by the protection of the angels. Rather than he protecting them, they are protecting him. Okay. Then he's told to flee. He's told to go get his sons-in-law, but his sons-in-laws don't respect him. He's not even liked or respected within his own family. But you say, well, in-laws, sons-in-law, fathers-in-law, there's always problems there with the in-laws. But his own wife, he has not led his home in such a way that his own wife would flee the destruction upon Sodom. He has failed his family in every way. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down, this is a reference back to chapter 18. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. On account of Abraham, God saved Lot. But God did not save Lot's wife or his sons-in-law or his older daughters on his account. The righteousness of Abraham has had an impact in Lot's life. But the righteousness of Lot has had no impact upon those around him verse 30 and now lot sorry now lot went up out of zoar and lived in the hills recall that it was to the hills the angels wanted to send him and he said no 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 no. if i go there disaster will overtake me you want to talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy now lot went up out of zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters for he was afraid to live in Zoar. We're not sure why. I think it's reasonable to speculate that the wickedness of Sodom had found its way into Zoar as well, and that he didn't want to go through that again. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. This is somewhat less euphemistic than knowing someone. It is a bit more explicit and graphic. This daughter is portrayed as one given to the coarseness of this world, undoubtedly impacted by all that she saw and heard in her time in Sodom. She also, you'll note there, there is not a man on the earth. Note the hyperbole, note the extreme statement. Hyperbole has a place in your storytelling, but do not let it have a place in your reasoning. Be truthful in your reasoning, be honest, be measured, be accurate. For when hyperbole, when extremes, when exaggeration creeps into your reasoning, it becomes the foundation and the justification for all manner of wickedness. It is the truth which will set you free. Not hyperbole. Tell stories with that kind of wording. But do not make decisions based on those sorts of thoughts. Verse 32, come, let us, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place there. Uh, uh, Come, let us make, sorry. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. the ancient Israelite view toward uh, 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 incest was every bit as uh, profound as its view of homosexuality. In other words, to Moses' original audience, this would have been perceived as every bit as grotesque and sinful as what had happened in Sodom. The wickedness, the, sin, the sexual perversion has crept out of the city of Sodom and into Lot's family. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night Also, And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day, to the day of which Moses is writing. We have considered at some length the telling of the story. Of Lot, And I think we need to consider the story and how it is told. How it is presented in the bleakest of terms. How there is not a single bit of re- redeeming quality found anywhere in this man, Lot. There is nothing about him that says righteous. And so why is this here? In the midst of the Abraham account... In the midst of the telling of the tale of Abraham and his long life, why does Moses, at the behest of God, insert this parenthetical uh, commentary on what happened in the life of Lot, the nephew? In many ways, the story of Abraham would, would flow on quite naturally without the insertion of Genesis 19. If you cut it out of your Bible, you really won't miss that much. And yet, it is an important, there are important lessons and important truths to be learned. Very quickly, just three. Your goodness does not save you. Your goodness does not save you. We're going to re- reference Genesis fifteen six. Point number two, your goodness might save others. Matthew 5.16. Your goodness might save others. Matthew 5.16. Finally, thank goodness he will wipe away every tear. Revelation 21.4. Real quickly, three lessons from the life of Lot. Your goodness does not save you. Lot, as I have mentioned, is described as a righteous man. And as we have discussed, there is nothing about him that seems righteous. So how is it that Peter can make a statement that he is a righteous man? More than that, by this point, we should understand from the book of Genesis that salvation from a temporal earthly threat is a picture of, a model of, a type for. The salvation of God from the eternal threat of his wrath. Noah was saved from the flood so as to depict God's salvation in the midst of judgment. Abram was saved while in Egypt so as to depict God's salvation from the threats of those around us. The storytelling is meant for us to see in the earthly salvation a divine salvation, an eternal salvation. Lot escapes the wrath of God. He is one of us, despite the tremendous wickedness we see in him. So how can that be? Genesis 15.6. You'll recall what was going on there. God is reiterating his promise to Abraham. And he says again to Abraham, as he had already said a couple of times, I will make you into a great nation. I will give you offspring. I will give you a a land to call your own. I will give you this land to call your own. I will make you a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And Genesis 15, 6 says, And he, Abraham, believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. We are saved only through faith. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. The good things Abraham did and would go on to do are not what counted as righteousness. Righteousness. Rather, it is his faith that counted as righteousness. And we went into some detail back in that sermon about why the role of faith and why it's important. But to, to, just boil down without going through that sermon all over again, what it comes down to is this. When we are saved by faith, then we are saved ultimately by God. Even the faith doesn't get credited as merit to us our salvation is entirely of God so that he gets all the glory for it. Lot is a saved man because he has believed in the God of Uncle Abraham. He is a righteous man by faith. Your good works, your goodness does not save you. There is no pretense of goodness surrounding this man, lot. And yet, clearly, he is saved. Secondly, your goodness might save others. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light shine so that your good works will be seen by others and they will glorify your Father in heaven. Your goodness does not save you, but it might save others. What if Lot had finally said, "Honey, kids, I know you like it. I know you got friends in school here. I know you I know you got your sweet and that boy down the street, but we got to get out of this place. We've got to get out of this place. Your righteousness, your understanding of the true God matters more than anything we can find in Sodom." Would Lot have saved his wife and daughters? Could he have saved his sons-in-law? Perhaps he moves and they stay behind. But on those visits, they begin to understand why he moved. And they begin to go, wait a second. He really does believe this God of his. Maybe there's something to my father-in-law's faith. Jesus challenges his listeners, his disciples, to live lives of light, to live lives of good deeds, so that those around would see them and give glory to God. If you live in a dark place like Sodom, the good news is that even a dim light shines brightly in the darkness. Don't extinguish it, fan it. Don't give in to the darkness Foster more light in your life. Seek God's word. Pray more, not less. Speak of him more, not less. Pursue righteousness more, not less. So that others in the midst of that darkness would see the light of life in you. Your goodness does not save you. You're saved through faith. Your goodness might save others as they see the fruit of your faith in you. Finally, thank goodness he will wipe every tear away. Revelation 21.4. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, is the account of the new heaven, the new Jerusalem coming down, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the earth. And one of the things that it says there, in fact, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21, verse 4. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21, 4. I'm going to actually start back at 20, verse 20, uh, verse 1. Revelation 21. I think very often we don't consider the implications of that. For tears to be wiped away, there must be tears. For tears to be wiped away, there must be tears. I go back to the illustration with which I opened. Can you imagine a sergeant who survives the battle when his platoon has not? Rejoicing in his salvation? Can you imagine Lot rejoicing over his grandchildren, whom he fathered in a drunken stupor? The rest of his life on the earth is a painful reminder of all the ways he failed to live life wisely. our New Testament reading talked about. I think Paul may have very well had lot in mind. Our New Testament reading talks about how there will be a, a, a fire to judge our works and how much of what we do will be consumed. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as though through fire. This is not a story of the great rejoicing of salvation or a story of the great joy that we have in salvation. It is a sober and somber warning that those of us who are saved, those of us who are believing in Jesus Christ, must live lives in this world so that others around us will also be saved. It's a story of a salvation with great loss. Lot entered heaven with eyes full of tears. Will he rejoice one day in the glory of Jesus Christ? Yes. He will wipe every tear away. Will Lot eventually sing the praises of the salvation of God? Yes, he will. Because God will wipe every tear away. But Lot was saved with great loss. Would Lot not have enjoyed going to heaven more with his wife there, his daughters there, his sons-in-law there? This story sits in the context of Abraham's narrative so that we have a contrast between those who live lives faithfully and those who simply have a life of faith. It is a difficult text. Praise God, he will wipe every tear away. Lord, we lift our lives up to you, and we ask that you would help us examine ourselves in light of the warnings of this text, that we would not be like Lot compromising with the world, selling out to the world, longing for a place of privilege and power and position in the world, only to find that we have sacrificed everyone close to us. Let us instead live like Abraham, at peace in the world, but not compromised by it. Let us live lives of Growing sanctification, not growing compromise. Let us live lives that shed light in the darkness, not lives that are snuffed out by the darkness. Give us strength in a world that is dark and dying. That we would be used by you to save many around us.